Let's begin with prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you so much for your mercies. They are new every morning, and we thank you for the provisions that you've given us uh, in this great facility that we can gather together and learn more about your word. And as Bob had mentioned last time, Lord, we thank you that we're not pagans, that we're not left in darkness, that we have your divine light. And so today, as we look at the first portion of this imminent coming of Christ's kingdom, we ask that you would enable us to believe these promises so that we would live lives that glorify you, that we would also persevere until that great day. And so I ask that this would be a blessing. Help us to think well upon your text, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now, as you can see here, we're going to actually be getting into the text itself of Revelation. We're going to be doing the preface. And I want to begin by mentioning Bob and I have talked a lot about the promises of God. As of late, he's been talking about it in the means of grace. And I want you to think about the imminent coming kingdom of Christ is really the promise for the people of God. And what I mean by that is it's what you and I are to look forward to. And it's the primary promise that is used in the New Testament to exhort believers to godly living, both in faith and obedience. And so we're going to see, by the way, so this is part one on imminence. We're going to be focusing on imminence in Revelation and the epistles. Well, then next week we're going to focus on the doctrine of imminence in the Gospels and 1 Thessalonians 5 in particular. And what I mean by that in the Gospels is the Olivet Discourse. So with that, I'm going to be handing out also a nice uh, flow chart on how this whole section lines up, the different chapters. And, um, and so I'll be giving that to you an outline next week. So an outline for chapters 1 through 3, and then I'll kind of give you further outlines as we go. But I want you to see as we are into chapter 1, chapter 1 is all about the preparation of the prophet. Who is the prophet? Well, it's the Apostle John. And so there's two parts, really, to chapter 1. The first is the prologue, and the second portion is the preparation of the prophet for writing or his actual exhortation to write. So in the prologue, you have three parts. The first part is the preface. The second part is the address and doxology. By the way, what's a doxology? It's a word of glory to God, yeah, for what he's done. And then the third portion is the theme itself, which is, by the way, the theme, listen to the theme of Revelation. Behold, he is coming on the clouds. This is Revelation 1.7. Now, where does this idea of he's coming on the clouds come from? Well, it comes from Daniel 7, right? See, behold, he's coming on the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And that's Zechariah 9.9. So that way we know Zechariah 9.9 is ultimately looking for the future. So that's the theme. But this week we're just looking at the preface. And the preface is only three verses. Let me read, then I'll make some comments about it. Revelation 1, 1 through 3, John writes this. He says, The revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave him to show to his bondservants the things which must soon take place. And he sent and communicated it by his angel to his bondservant John, who testified to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it, for the time is near. Now, what's interesting about the preface is it really accomplishes five different things for us, and I'll take each of these one by one. The first thing that the preface gives to us here is the title of the entire book. And notice the title is referred to as 
aptly the revelation of Jesus Christ. The term revelation is apocalypsis. It means the unveiling of Jesus Christ. But here's what we have to wrestle with. With that title, the revelation of Jesus Christ, we have to wrestle with is this what's called an objective genitive or a subjective genitive. Now let me explain the difference. An objective genitive, Jesus would be the object that is being revealed. And so it'd be about his revelation at his second advent. Now certainly, the book of Revelation, when we get to chapter 19, verse 11, we see that. However, the latter is more likely that this is what's called a subjective genitive. What that means, yes, Scott. A genitive is a construction. It means typically a construction of possession. So like the love of God, is it God's love for us or our love for God? That's what we wrestle with. Well, here, what we're wrestling with is Jesus the one being revealed or is he doing the revealing? And it's actually the latter. He is the subject who is doing the revealing. And the way we know that, that's the emphasis, is notice the phrase, God gave him to show. Okay, so notice God has given to Jesus this revelation to show what? Show his bondservants, the doulas. And the plural there, it's probably referring to all Christians. All right? Now, you're probably wondering, what am I talking about with channels? Am I talking about the History Channel and Fox News, etc.? No, I'm just simply trying to put on there a way to say, look, it even gives us the channel of revelation. So notice, I'm going to point to the screen here. This revelation begins with God the Father, and it's given to Christ. Now, Christ, who is he? Well, he's, of course, the Son of God, but isn't he also called, in Hebrews 3, the apostle of our faith, right? He is the apostle par excellence, meaning he is the sent one. And so from him, then, it goes to all of us. But notice, there's another couple of channels that are interesting. It goes through an angel to his bondservant, John, which, of course, is the Apostle John. So think about the order. It goes from God the Father to the sent one, the Son of God, God himself, Jesus. It goes from Jesus to the angel. It goes from the angel to John, our apostle. And then how do we have access to it? It's through the Word of God. So just as Bob was saying last week, you and I are preserved from paganism because you and I are those who know God and His will, His kingdom, even the things that He's revealed about the future, not through experience. You and I don't divine things to find out about this future kingdom. We know it through the Word of God. We know it because it's been revealed. Isn't that beautiful? Now, what's the content? Well, notice, of course, that the content of this entire book is it's a prophecy. Now, why is that important that John calls it a prophecy? Well, all the aberrant views we were mentioning in our introduction regarding interpretation, whether it's preterism, the idealist approach, the historist approach, all of them like to spiritualize the text. And the way they get away with doing that is they try to claim that the book of Revelation is primarily apocalyptic. Apocalyptic means hidden, right? Or it's revealed, but the idea is that it's in the, typically the apocalyptic literature was in the apocryphal time period, in the intertestamental time. Well, these things were hidden, and they had no prophet that was actually revealing anything. Okay, so the apocalyptic literature used symbols that anyone could kind of change and twist to fit their interpretation. 
Well, that's not what we have in the book of Revelation, as we had mentioned in our introduction. We have, when we have symbols, we have clues and outright confirmation as to what they are. So this is a prophecy. Now, in light of the fact that it's a prophecy, that's the content, what is the purpose of it? Well, notice the first thing that it does is it tells us about the things which must soon take place. Now, where did we see that alluding to in the Old Testament? That was Daniel 2.28, wasn't it? Remember in Daniel 2.28, you had the, apo- or the prophet rather Daniel given a vision about the things that were to happen in the last days. And it was all about the coming kingdom of Christ that smashes all their kingdoms. So now John is picking up on that. He's saying these are the things which must take place soon. So the kingdom, if, if Daniel 2.28 was about the coming kingdom of the Messiah... You can bet that that's exactly what Revelation is about. Yeah, Bob. I don't know if you have the Greek in front of you, but in verse 2 you have, at least from English, what appears to be another genitive, the testimony of Jesus Christ. Yeah. And we have there, because I noticed the Holman Christian Standard Bible has it, um, the testimony about Jesus Christ. So they're making an interpretation. Yeah. Did you come to a decision on that one? Yeah, I was, I was going to come to that. It's, it's a great catch. Oh, I'm sorry. No, 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 yeah, no that's yeah. good. I'm glad you... That's, well, you uh, okay, sorry I think about that, that that is an objective, would be like an objective genitive. Testimony because, about Jesus. Exactly. So we really then have both. Isn't that beautiful? So not only does Christ reveal, but he is the one that the revelation is all about. Yeah, well, I was thinking of... In a couple of weeks, I'm going to go through how to discern a true work of the Spirit Yeah. In, in our teaching on means of grace. And this is yet another one. The Holy Spirit comes upon someone because we know that he came upon John. Yes. And he testifies about Christ. Amen. That's right. Well said. Yeah, a work of the Spirit isn't bring people into some feeling of ecstasy or doesn't bring about some erratic behavior. I remember seeing uh, somebody stick their head in the plant one time at a message and they tried to call that that was a work of the Spirit. Rather, the work of the Spirit brings about confession of Christ and it's confession of Christ that stems from the objective word, not some subjective feeling. So, thank you, Bob. Yes. Um, Now, the purpose then is not only to talk about this kingdom that must take place soon, but notice in verse 3 it says, Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy. So let's stop there. Why would you and I be blessed? And what does it mean to be blessed? Well, blessed in its widest, if I could give the widest uh, kind of tag phrase for it, it's really about salvation, having peace with God, having messianic salvation, having the wrath of God averted. That's ultimately being blessed in both the Old and the New Testament. So you and I are going to be ultimately blessed if we read and hear these things. And notice the writer focuses on both the hearing and the reading. Remember, in the first century, you would have had perhaps only one copy of these books at any given church. So there would have been somebody reading, and the rest would have been hearing. And they would have heard very well. They would have had to pay attention. Now, at the the end of the day, it doesn't matter. Bottom line, you and I get a revelation from the Word. Whether it's somebody preaching to us or it's us reading it ourselves, the revelation comes from the written Word of God. But notice he says, we also have to heed the things which are in it. Now, heeding means what? 
We have to believe the promises which are in it about this imminent coming kingdom. And we also, in light of that, obey what he has called us to do. And in fact, in the first three chapters, you're going to see a lot of call to obedience for the churches. Remember the seven churches? Five of them are called to repent for what they're doing. So the idea then is in light of the soon coming kingdom, we're blessed. That means we have salvation with God. If we what? If we heed these words. And the significance of this particular book saying that we're blessed if we heed these things. Think about this. This is the last book written. It's the last one. And so you know then why I think it's so significant. At the end of the book, John says that anyone who adds or subtracts from this book will in fact not enter into the kingdom of God. Why? Because this is it. It's the final word. Once God reveals to us about the coming of his son, what else do we need? We have a faith once for all handed down to the saints. Now, the final thing that I want to talk about then is the timing of all of this. And that's what I want to focus on in the next couple of messages is really on this doctrine of imminence. Notice, first of all, what's highlighted in red up top, the things that must take place soon. Okay, soon is an imminence indicator. In fact, in my mind, when I translate it, I translate it imminently. So when I read that to myself, I say, these things are the things that must take place imminently. And I'll be proving that to you. Okay? Now, notice at the bottom, it's reinforced. So you have verse 1 and verse 3 of the preface bracketed by imminence terms, terms that have to do with imminence. You have the time is near. The adverb angus is used. Okay? So this really is about the imminent coming of the kingdom. So what I want to do is talk further about these timing indicators and i want to show and i've showed you i know this probably ad nauseum but remember revelation 1 1 is built off of daniel 228 daniel 228 daniel the prophet is given the vision remember nebuchadnezzar has this dream daniel's given the same thing but also the interpretation you have four kingdoms that come about it's the babylonian the medo-persian the greek and the roman empires but in that vision you also have what the kingdom that's going to last forever the messianic kingdom and when daniel gets that revelation about this messianic kingdom that will endure forever he says this is god speaking to him these are the things which must take place when in the last days okay now for you astute bible students when did the last days begin Yeah, the first advent of Christ, right? We know that from Hebrews 1, 2. In these last days, he has spoken to us through his son. So through the first advent of Christ, the last days have been ushered in. So now what's interesting is under the inspiration of the Spirit, John picks up on that. Revelation 1, 1, he says, these are the things which must take place soon. What things is he referring to? The things associated with the messianic kingdom. The same thing out of Daniel 2. But notice the difference. In Daniel 2, it was put off to the last days, but now it's soon. The idea is at hand. Now, take special note of the phrase that I've highlighted read, the things which must take place. Again, I just mentioned that the things that both Daniel was referring to and John is referring to has to do with the Messianic kingdom. Well, what's interesting is that phrase brackets the or should I maybe I would say it this way it's the bookends of the future section in Revelation so in other words in Revelation chapter 4 remember Revelation chapter 1 all the way through chapter 3 is about the things that were 
and the things that are. But when you go from chapter 4 all the way to 22, you're about the future, things that are still in our future, the future kingdom. Well, that's what you have in Revelation 4.1. The first bookend, it's stated to John, he says, come up here and I will show you the things which must take place after these things. So you see that same phrase. All right. Do you remember last, or what was the last time I was teaching, I think, in the book of Revelation, I'd mentioned that, that phrase, the things which must take place, is also found in the Olivet Discourse. Okay, showing us that the Olivet Discourse is also about this future kingdom. We'll talk about that next week. All right? Now, the other book in then, in Revelation 22, uses the same phrase at the end of the book. Revelation 22, 6, these words are faithful and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, sent his angel to show to his bondservants, that's really all of us, the things which must take place. And again, you have soon. So notice Revelation 1, 1, you have soon, the things which must take place soon at the end of the book. You have the things which must take place soon. Do you think something is being accentuated for us? I think so. Now, let me do a little apologetics with you, if I may. Remember I had mentioned preterism. There's two different camps of preterism, partial preterism, full preterism. Partial preterists believe the majority of the book of Revelation was fulfilled either in 70 AD, that's all the way up to chapter 13, but then the rest of it all the way up to chapter 20 was fulfilled during the church age. And one of the reasons they tried to claim, these partial preterists, that this book had to, at least the majority of it in the beginning, had to be fulfilled by 70 AD, is they latch on to that in Revelation 1, 1, where it says soon. And so they say, aha, soon cannot be 2,000 years later, and we still haven't had the coming of Christ. Maybe it's going to be another 1,000 years. So they would say, you see, that would argue for some sort of arrival of Christ and fulfillment by 70 AD. Now, what's the problem with that? Well, notice they even believe when you get to chapter 20 through chapter 22, that that's still about the future. But notice the same phrase is used in chapter 22. Do you see the contradiction they're in? You see, if soon in Revelation 1 all the way to Revelation 20 verse 6 proves that these things are fulfilled in 70 AD, they still believe these partial preterists from Revelation chapter 20 verse 7 all the way to the end is still future. But at the very end, it's governed by the term soon as well. So you see, they can't have it both ways. If this has to be fulfilled, the beginning of Revelation in 70 AD because of soon, the end of the book has to as well. So then the partial preterist is only left with what? Full preterism. Now, what's full preterism? They deny the second coming of Christ altogether. But that's the only consistent position. So what should you do then? You jettison preterism altogether. And you say, soon doesn't have to do with being fulfilled in 70 AD. It has to do with the idea of being at hand. It's the idea of imminence. All right? So now, that's what I'm going to lay out for you is this doctrine of imminence in Revelation. So let me begin again in Revelation 1.1. I want to focus on this prepositional phrase that's being used. Again, it talks about the things which must take place soon. Now, soon is actually two words in the Greek. It's a preposition n. And then it's take, a noun. And what I want you to realize is this really can be translated two different ways. The first way it can be translated is quickly. The idea that when he comes, he comes quickly. 
It's, um, it'd be kind of like what you do, do quickly. That sort of idea. But does that really help us in the context here? Does it make sense? Is it any blessing to the church to say, well, when Jesus comes, he's coming quickly? Well, do you and I care how fast he descends to earth? If he goes at 800 miles per hour, are we going to be disappointed? We were hoping for 1,500 or 2,000? No. The issue isn't how fast these things occur. The issue for us is imminence. And so what I want to show you is that's exactly how it's being used here, and it's used elsewhere in that way, the idea that it's shortly, it's imminent, it's at hand. In fact, who had the uh, Acts 25.4? I'm going to show you how Enteke is used elsewhere. So, Brian, I think you had that one. Acts 25.4, Festus then answered that Paul was being kept in custody at Caesarea and that he himself was about to leave shortly. Do everybody hear that? He was going to leave shortly? That's the same prepositional phrase, enteke. Now, how shortly? Well, they didn't say. Shortly. If your mom says, I'm going to the store shortly, and she doesn't give you an exact time, you know it is at hand. It's imminent. Why? You don't know the exact moment, but she says it shortly. All right? Uh, who had Romans 16.20? Did I give that to, to anybody? Oh, I gave that to you too. <laughs> it's great that you and I have such good memories, Brian. <laughs> the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Well, how soon? We're not told. It's at hand. That's the next event on God's agenda. When his coming kingdom breaks forth, you have the destruction finally of Satan's domain. Yes, it's been finished in one sense, once and for all by the finished work of Christ, positionally, but experientially we haven't, we haven't experienced it as it were. Okay, so again, it's the idea that it's at hand. So what I want to show you then is you certainly have this idea of imminence in the preface because verse 1 has soon, and then you have in verse 1, 3, you have near. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are in it, for the time is near. Now, the term near there is an adverb. It sounds like you're saying someone's name, Angus. Angus is the adverb, but it has this idea of nearness, now, sometimes it's used like in John 3.23 for objects being near. You have John the Baptist doing baptism and he was near, it says, the town of Salim. So the context has to tell you what the nearness is in reference to. And in this instance, what it's telling us is that the time is near. Now, what is significant about that usage of the term time? Well, in Greek, there's two different terms for time. One is chronos, that has to do with time on your watch, okay? But the other term that's used is kairos. That's what's being used here. Kairos isn't the time on your watch, it's the time on your calendar. Now, what do I mean by that? You and I live our daily lives worried about chronos, chronology. I have to be somewhere at 5.30. 5.35 comes after 5.34. That's chronology. But the significant events of life are put on our calendar. My son's birthday. I have to be teaching somewhere on Wednesday. I have to, you all have that, right? 
That's a significant time. And so kairos is used over and over in the New Testament, not just for chronology, but the significant appointed time. And so it's often used in context with the eschatological kingdom in view because it's the significant appointed time that is next on God's redemptive calendar. That's the usage of kairos. Okay? Now, what I want to do is show you that, again, at the end of the book, it's used. The same thing. Revelation 22.10. And he said to me, Do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Okay, again, you have kairos, the appointed time. Now, what's interesting is, does this passage remind you of anything? Revelation 22.10. It should bring back to our minds, if we've read Daniel recently, remember in Daniel 12.9, you have God telling Daniel the prophet, seal up the words of this book, for it has to do with the last days. But now John is told what? Don't seal up the words of the prophecy. Why? Because the kairos, the appointed time, the significant time on God's redemptive calendar where this messianic kingdom will break forth is what? It is near. It is at hand. And so, therefore, you see this doctrine of imminence being taught in the book of Revelation. And so what contributes to the doctrine of imminence is this idea that you have both something that is known and something that is unknown. What is known is that the coming of the kingdom is near. What is unknown is when. Is it near in the sense of five minutes? It could be. Or is it 500 years? It could be. You don't know that. You just know it's near. And so when an unknown event, in other words, you don't know the exact moment, is near, it creates imminence. It's at hand. That's the idea. Now, what I want to do is show you some other passages. Turn your books, as it were, the Bible, to Acts 1, 6 through 7. I want to show you where else this term time is used when it's referring to eschatology. Acts 1, 6 through 7. I'm going to show you where Kairos is used in other significant texts about the coming kingdom. Now remember, this is where the apostles in Acts 1 had been taught about the kingdom of God for how many days? For 40. So they'd been given a, a theological course, a seminary course from Jesus himself for 40 days about the kingdom of God. Well, in Acts 1, 6 through 7... It says this, it says, So when they, that's the apostles, had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time, that's chronos, they're saying, hey, is it time for the kingdom? Is it at this time you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Now notice Jesus doesn't say to them, where did you guys get that idea? No, the implication is, yeah, this kingdom is coming to Israel. They got that right, but the issue is they're not to know the time. He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority. Times there is chronos, epochs is kairos. So they're not to know either the chronology or even the timing of the significant time, the appointed time for the breaking forth of this kingdom. So again, that's what creates imminence because if this significant time is near, but you never know what the date is, it's always near until it breaks forth. That's the idea. It's always at hand. And, and now, I want to be careful. I shouldn't say it's always at hand, because if it's always at hand, it's perpetually at hand and it never happens. Okay? What I want to 
clarify is that it's at hand until it comes. Does that make sense? Now, let me show you another phrase or another passage where it uses the same phrase. 1 Thessalonians 5. 1 Thessalonians 5. Turn your Bibles to that. 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 1 through 2. Remember, Paul had just, by the way, in 1 Thessalonians 4, talked about the rapture. So ironically, how that's connected then to what the day of the Lord in 1 Thessalonians 5. 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 through 2, he says, Now as to the times, there's chronos, and the epochs, there's kairos, the same formula you had in Acts 1. He says, Brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you, for you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. So now we have a connection between this kairos, this significant time, and the day of the Lord. When will the day of the Lord come? You don't know. It comes like a thief in the night. Now, does a thief in the night give you a precursor if he's going to steal from your house? Does he call you and say, by the way, I'm coming at 11.52 p.m., and you'll know it because there's going to be a blue Buick out in your street. (laughs) And you'd be all set for bear, wouldn't you? You'd be all loaded up. You'd look like Arnold Schwarzenegger, right, when he comes in the door. Yeah. Notice the next verse, for when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction will come on. That seems pretty specific. Exactly. So while they're saying peace and safety, sudden destruction comes upon them. Why would they be saying peace and safety during the tribulation period? And so, remember, Jesus says, as it was in the days of Noah, they were giving away in marriage, they were eating and drinking. In other words, life was going on as it always was. There was nothing to tip you off. That's why Hebrews eleven seven it says, Noah prepared the ark, being convinced by God's word of things not yet seen. There was nothing to tip them off. Many, many people think that peace and safety has to do with a peace treaty. No, what I think it has to do with is that everything is going on as it always has. Because the the contrast is between people saying peace and safety and sudden destruction comes upon them. They're unaware that this wrath is coming. They won't believe when you preach to them that wrath is coming, they don't believe it. They say, oh, these doomsdayers are always saying that the end of the world is coming. Wrath, wrath, but it never comes. And that's what, remember, 2 Peter 3 is about. Remember the false teachers are saying, he's not coming. This day of the Lord is never going to break forth, he says, but he's not slow concerning his promise. But he what? Desires that none would perish. So it's interesting, Rich, is you asked a very good question because think about this. In Revelation chapter 6, Revelation chapter 6, at the breaking forth of the tribulation, you lose right away a quarter of the earth's population due to warfare. You have famine, beast, pestilence poured out upon the people of the earth. Do you think after people witness those things, they're going to be saying, peace and safety, this is great? No. So that's part of the sudden destruction that came upon them. So what does that mean? That means the day of the Lord happens before those things, the inception of it. Is everybody with me? Okay, so the day of the Lord then is connected to this significant time. And so the reason it's imminent is because, again, it's known that it will come. We know that it's near, but how near we don't know. And so what I want to do is I want to talk about the definition of imminence in particular. Here's the definition as I see it, and this is the one that I think will be helpful to everyone. An imminent event is one that threatens to break forth at any moment. And it is an event 
that is at hand. The King James Version puts that in the text, I think, in Revelation 1-3, which is the one area where I like the King James. It is at hand. It's a great way of putting it. Okay? Now, here's the issue, again, that we have to think about with imminence. Imminence, you have something that is known. The event will happen. It won't be put off indefinitely, this coming kingdom. But what is unknown is when the event will happen. And so you have both elements, and that which, that's what creates the, the doctrine of imminence. Now, there's three implications then from that. Number one, the event does not have to occur within a time frame. The, the event does not have to occur within any time frame. So what does that mean? It means that these preterists who say, well, it had to have happened within 70 AD, they don't understand imminence. An imminent event is at hand, but you don't know when it's going to come. And so because you don't know when, it may be five seconds, it may be five minutes, it may be five years, it may be 500 years. It's at hand. It doesn't have to happen within any certain time frame. Number two, there's no precursor to tip one off to an imminent event. If you have a precursor, it's not imminent. Okay, so if the Antichrist has to come first, it's not imminent. And we just throw the doctrine of imminence out. We say imminence is not taught. But imminence is taught. And therefore, we shouldn't wait for the Antichrist. There's no precursor to tip you off. Number three, there's no way to set a date for an imminent event. Now, let me tell you a practical application. Yeah, Mark. I had a question on um, Thessalonians 2.3. Yeah. Where it's talking. Yes. I'm sorry, the first Thessalonians 5, 2 through 3? No, 2, two 3, let no man deceive you that, um, by any means that for that day shall not come except there come a falling away first and the man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition. Yeah, remember, Mark, I did that in my logic class. And what I showed is that in the Protestants, first of all, turn, everyone turn your Bibles to 2 Thessalonians 2. You can also get this in our logic class. I refuted the way that that's typically understood. But I will do that again. I can do that next week specifically. I can put it up and diagram it. But let's turn to it real quickly. This is a typical precursor that's often thought of as existing. But it's really, we're being misled by this apotesis construction. Notice, first of all, everybody turn to 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 1. It says, Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, we ask you, brothers, now this is verse 2, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed either by a spirit or a spoken word as a letter seeming to be from us as to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Now notice that verb, has come. The best rendering of it is present. Remember, I gave a lot of data on that last time in logic because I talked about it's a perfect tense and a staken. And it literally has to do with an event that transpired in the past, but its effect is always with us to this day. And so the idea then is that the people of Thessalonica were concerned that they were living in the day of the Lord. Uh Uh-oh. I did. Um, So they thought they were actually living in the day of the Lord. 
So the way to translate that, now come gives it to us, but you have to think hard about it. There, he's saying, don't let anyone deceive you as if the day of the Lord is here. Okay, now here's the problem. Notice the next section in the scripture is not in the Greek text. It has to be supplied by the translator. And that's our apotheosis. Okay, so notice what it goes on to say. It says, let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come. Where it says, that day will not come, that has to be supplied by the translator. Okay, so that means you and I, or whoever's translating this Bible, we have to supply that. So let me ask you, when the question is at hand, that the, remember the prior verse, the day of the Lord is here, perfect tense, why are they talking about the day will not come? You see what I'm saying? It's irrational. It's not that the day will not come. It's that the day isn't here. So it's not talking about a precursor. What Paul is saying is you can't be in the day of the Lord because the first thing in the day of the Lord is what? The apostasy and the revealing of the man of lawlessness. By the way, there's a great article that we have on this very, this very passage on our website by um, Dr. Robert Thomas. I was trying to think of his first name. Robert Thomas, and it's all about imminence in the New Testament, and he hits 2 Thessalonians 2 very hard. And so the, the way, this is the way I think it should be translated. Again, that's, that's not in the Greek text. That's being supplied by the translator. This is the way it should be worded. He said, don't be worried about the fact that the day of the Lord is here. He says, let no one deceive you in any way, for that day is not here unless the rebellion comes first. And what I'll show you next week is that first is not a first before something else happens. It's the first within the day. It'd be like pre-boarding. Have you ever been on an airline? They say, we're going to start pre-boarding. How can you really board before you board? Right? Isn't pre-boarding really part of the boarding process? That's the same thing here. The rebellion is the first thing within the day of the Lord. Okay? So he's saying you can't be within the day of the Lord because the first thing within the day of the Lord is this apostasy. Have you seen that? Well, then you're not. See, they already believe they missed the coming of Christ. So you can say, well, you didn't miss the coming of Christ because you didn't miss the coming of Christ. It's it's a tautology. It doesn't add anything to the argument. So what he does is he says, well, what's the first thing within the day of the Lord? Well, it's the apostasy. Well, you can't be in it because you haven't seen that. That's what he's saying. But that's when we get our grammar right. And that's why I'm so big on logic and protestus, apotestus, and all that stuff that a lot of people yawn at. But it's important when we want to get our theology right. Yep. So I hope that helps. But I can diagram that up again next week if we have time or even the following time. Okay? So thank you. It's a great question. That's the typical one that's thrown out there. Yep. So, um, all right. Now, so anybody else have any questions about imminence? I'll throw one more. Yeah. Do you agree that the day of the Lord or the rapture, let's just say the rapture. Sure. Now, would you believe, understand it or would you say that God has already predestined, you know, the very second of the day of the hour that this is going to occur? Yeah. So maybe to us it's imminent, but to him it wouldn't be because he is already predestined. In other words, he cannot return today if this isn't the day that he is predestined to return. So imminent maybe to us, but not imminent to God himself. Yeah, I, you know, Rich, I, I see what you're saying. I guess it's kind of a moot point because we're not God. You know what I mean? We have to live as we are. So um, Matthew 20, 40, 24, 36, I'll show you that in the next couple slides. No one knows the day or the hour except what the Father alone. So the idea is we don't know, so it's imminent to us. Yeah. Yep. 
That's what I was just going to say. It's it, it, the father alone. Even yeah. the, even the son doesn't know exactly the day and the hour. Only the father knows. That's right. Well said, Diane. And yeah, that's a that's another interesting issue with uh, the person of Christ. His both being fully man, truly man, truly God. Yeah, ex- exactly. So, does that help, Rich? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> you sound convinced. Know, but it really isn't imminent, though. I mean, it's not imminent to God. But it okay, but yeah. the mind of God that we know about is what's revealed in Scripture. Now, the passage in Acts that Eric was uh, citing talks about the epochs and, and the things appointed by the Father. We don't know what that is. Yeah. He has not chosen to reveal that to us. And you could say that about lots of things. Let's just talk about the identity of all the elect. Hmm. God knows those who are his, and he knows everyone who will be saved. And he knows whose names are in the Lamb's Book of Life, even ones that are yet unsaved at this point in history. We know that about God, but that doesn't exactly change our theology any. We still have to preach to everybody. Does that make sense? Yeah, up into the point, though, up into the point where if the rapture doesn't happen before the trib starts, it's still imminent. But if you had a precursor tipping you off, let's say you had, for instance, a lot of times people say, well, the Antichrist comes first. Let's take the pre-wrath view, for instance. Well, if the Antichrist comes first, then we can say truly today, Jesus' coming cannot happen today or tomorrow because there has to be a precursor first, and therefore it's not imminent. Precursor to us, but God could still, he could still have that day set during the trib. And, and whether we need a precursor or not, he could still have the day set during the trib. But Rich, it's not about what God could do. God could do a lot of things. It's about what he has revealed, what he will do, and about exactly. what we don't know. And what we don't know, he's revealed what we don't know in this instance, which is when it happens. Exactly. If the next thing that was, is going to happen in, is the coming of Antichrist before the rapture, then we don't have imminence. But maybe that's a moot point itself. No, it's not, because, because then you have God uh, wasting ink. <laughs> then all of, this, uh, all of these parables about the virgins that weren't ready... Um, and Eric, you're going to do that yeah. next week, right? Yeah. Yep. Okay, all of the material toward the end of Matthew 24 and then the beginning of Matthew 25 is just misleading us. And one thing we know for sure about God is he can't lie. Yeah. Okay? And so if he says when they're saying peace and safety, or if he says in an hour when you think not, or when people think life is just ordinary and everything's as it always was and we're just going about our merry way, then it happens suddenly and unexpectedly, which you find in a lot of passages. All of those passages are vacuous. They're a waste of ink. They're a waste of time. So we can't appeal to secrets in the mind of God. We can only appeal to what's revealed. And what's revealed is imminence. Christ could return at any time. But even during the trip. That's any time, too. That is any time, too. But that wouldn't be imminent, then, because you'd have precursors that would tip you off as to when it's going to occur. Yeah, then, then the next thing is not the return of Christ. It's Antichrist or something else. Yeah. Exactly. It wouldn't be peace. That's my whole point, exactly. Yeah. Well, it wouldn't be the same peace of safety. The first time of the trip, and that's the very first... No. Wars, worms, and... You know, there's a false 
covenant made. Yeah. Uh, why don't we bring this up next week? Yeah, well, we'll hit this. Because we'll we're going to talk about that, about the chiasm in yep, Matthew, Matthew 24. 24. And um, yep. um, it'll make a lot of more sense when you see that. Exactly. And you know what, Rich? I'm going to show a lot of data in the New Testament epistles here, too, about imminence. So that's what I want to turn to next. Because I want to show you that imminence really is all over the New Testament. So let me begin... And, and by the way, I'll hit some more epistles next week, especially 1 Thessalonians 5. And if we have time, I'll try to address the 2 Thessalonians 2 and diagram it for you. But um, let me hit, first of all, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7. I'll just read it and I'll make some comments. Paul says this. He says, I think my God always concerning you. He's talking, obviously, to the Corinth believers in particular. He says, for the grace of God which was given to you in Christ Jesus, that in everything you were enriched in him, in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you, so that you are not lacking in any, in any gift, awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, notice this term, awaiting eagerly. It's actually a participle of the verb apodecami. And what's very interesting is it's used every single time when it's referring to waiting eagerly for the coming of Christ, it always has to do with this idea of being in the process of waiting, being the, being in the process of expectation. Now, part of that is derived from the tense of either the verb or the participle itself. The present tense verb is the tense where the writer portrays an action in process. So let me do a little grammar for you. And don't glaze over. This is important. In English... When you and I talk about verb tense, we're typically, as English thinkers, talking about past, present, and future. When did that event happen? But the Greek language is what's called an aspectual language. And this aspect has to do not only with tense, oh yes, they talk about past, present, and future as well, but it also adds the nuance of whether the action is complete or the action is depicted in process. The present tense is used oftentimes to show that the action is depicted in process. I'm almost tearing my mic off there. It's in process. Like as if, think about, if you said, I saw the game last Saturday, the implication is the game is done. But if, you, if a friend calls you and you say, I'm watching the game, it's in process. It's the idea of process that's being alluded to here with waiting eagerly. Now let me ask you this. If Jesus can't come at any moment, why would you be in the process of awaiting eagerly for his return? If Antichrist has to come first, wouldn't you not say, well, I'm not going to be in the process of waiting for him. I have to first have Antichrist come, right? Now, here's what I want to say. Just so you know that it's not just me and Bob or you know, just a few that have concocted this idea of imminence, let me read to you one of the best commentaries in the book of Corinthians, Bob had turned me on to Gordon Fee some years ago. And his work in 1 Corinthians is so seminal that a lot of people just didn't bother writing a commentary on 1 Corinthians afterwards. Listen to what he says about this. He says about this particular passage, he says, why then, this is Gordon Fee, why then this additional note about the coming of Christ? He says, it may, of course, mean nothing more than such a concern is ever present with the apostle himself since salvation for Paul was primarily an eschatological reality begun with Christ's first coming and to be consummated by his imminent return. Now, here's the point. Gordon Fee says this is teaching imminence. 
That's what's taught in the New Testament. Now, I want to show you how else apodecomai is used. We had uh, Jim. There you are. You had Romans. What I'm going to show you is that apodecomai in the present tense is used all over the place for being in the process of waiting our glorious hope, which, of course, is the rapture, resurrection, coming of Christ, all of those things. Okay, Romans 8, 19, and I think you gave me 23 and 25. You got it. So Romans 8, 19, and 23 and 25. Uh, verse 19, the creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. 23, not only... Not only okay, I'm sorry, Jim, stop right there. Notice it waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. That's apodecomai. Now, when are the sons of God revealed? At the coming of Christ, at the parousia. Okay, so there's eager expectation. Yep. Verse 23, not, not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly. There it is, apodecomai. For our adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. Redemption of our bodies, that's the resurrection. Yes, I'm sorry, keep going. Verse 25, but if we hope for what we do not have yet, we wait for it patiently. There you go. Wait for it patiently. Yep. So that's apodecomai again. So three times in a discourse, it's all about waiting for the resurrection and our glorious hope. You have this idea of being in the process, apodecomai. Now, how can you be in the process of waiting for something that can't happen? It argues very strongly yeah. for imminence. Yeah. The logic of it is if Antichrist must come first, yeah. then the return of Christ cannot be imminent. Exactly. I remember one... This first really became clear to me, I don't know, seven, five, six years ago. Yeah. And I brought it up to my pre-wrath friends. They believe Antichrist comes first. Right. Uh, they said, oh, your argument is the same one these pre-trip people always use. Well, I thought about that. What a stupid argument that is. <laughs> That's like somebody saying... You know, the Christians keep arguing that God created the world out of nothing. So, right. therefore, if you if you say that, then you're not worth listening to. Right, because it's an old argument. It was. Well, right. That's just a red herring. It's an absurd, right. it's a logical fallacy. Just because an argument is old doesn't mean... Yeah, because somebody else... <coughs> excuse me. Because somebody else used the argument doesn't prove that it's a false argument. That's right. Amen. The, the end of the day, you have to find out what the scriptures say. Exactly. And that, it really makes sense to me that both things are true, yeah. but that the imminent return of Christ is the next thing on the agenda. That's right. Amen. Thank you. Um, by the way, I have another apodecomai passage. Uh, Norm, you had uh, Hebrews 9.28? Hebrews 9.28, it's used again. And again, you'll see it, it's in context with the return of Christ. Go ahead, Norm. Eagerly await. There is the present form of apodecomai once again, showing us that any time it's used in the context, it has to do with being in the process of waiting. Okay. Yeah, now, and, and yeah. it might be said that decomai, the main root of the term, yeah. is used for welcome. Yes, welcome. That's at right. times, so not only are we waiting for Christ's return, we're welcoming Him and saying, "Even so, come quickly, Lord." Amen. Because our hearts long to be with our Savior. Oh, and we 
long for him to come for us. Yeah, amen. Now, with Apodecami, let me show you another one. And I don't have time to get into all of them, but here's Philippians 3.20. Paul says, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait. There's Apodecami, present tense, for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what's interesting is just six verses later, you have Paul say this in Philippians 4.5. He says, Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. That is, live right, right? Why? The Lord is near. The very same term that was used in Revelation 1.3. The term near there is angus. Okay, it's the adverb. All right? So what's interesting is, think about this. Some people say, well, the Lord being near here is just that he's near to us spiritually. But six verses earlier, Paul is talking about the second advent. So certainly the Lord being near is not the Lord being near spiritually, but it's about his second advent. It's at hand. That's the Lord's coming, okay? Now let me show you 1 Thessalonians 1.10. Paul says, We are to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. That is Jesus who rescues us from the wrath to come. Now notice the term to wait. That is anomeneo. It's a verb, and it's here it's a present tense, again, infinitive. So what are we to do? We are to be waiting. Now, present tense is about what? It's about being in the process of waiting for something. Why? Because it can break forth. All right? Now, notice also in this verse, he says, he's the one who rescues us from the wrath to come. The big debate is when does this wrath happen? Well, it happens at the beginning of the tribulation period. Okay, why? Because while they're saying peace and safety, sudden destruction comes upon them. Okay, so we're going to be rescued from the wrath, not through the wrath. And I'm going to show you that the term rescue and from, the preposition ek, has to do with being preserved on the outside. And I'll prove that to you when we get to Revelation 3.10, where Jesus says, because you've been faithful to keep my word, I will keep you from the hour of trial that comes upon the whole world. Let's say a math teacher said, you are so good in math. If you do 98% in all your work and your tests, I'll keep you from the hour of the last test. Does that mean that you're going to have to be in the test, but whatever result you get, he'll preserve you through it? No, it means you're skating. You're going to the, the beach. You're not there. Okay, you're kept from. And I will show you that the preposition and the verb combination functions in that way. Now, what, I want to give you a quote here. Um, remember, Bob, a few weeks ago, I love it when you said, I found the treasure trove. I found a lot of great quotes, and I want to give you some of them because I want you to see that it's not just our kooky ideas, Bob and I, that have concocted this imminence doctrine. Many other great scholars see it all over the place. This D. Edmund Hebert, he says about imminence and about this whole idea in 1 Thessalonians 1.10 this. He says, quote, In 1 Thessalonians 1.10, the Thessalonian believers are pictured as waiting for the return of Christ. The clear implication is that they had a hope of his imminent return. If they had been taught that the great tribulation in whole or in part must first run its course, it is difficult to see how they would be described as expectantly awaiting Christ's return. Then they should rather have been described as bracing themselves for the great tribulation and the painful events connected with it, unquote. Well said. I think he sees the data very clearly. Now, let me go on to talk about confusion. But before I get into the confusion about the doctrine of imminence, let me give you one more passage for the road here. James 5, 7 through 8 is very significant. James says this to his brothers, that is, believers. He says, Therefore, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. Coming is parousia there, which is the technical term for the second advent of Christ. 
He says, the farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it until it gets the early and late rains. You too be patient, strengthen your hearts for the coming of the Lord is near. Now the term coming there is the term parousia. Now parousia is a technical term that's used regarding the second advent. And what you have to realize is just as the first advent had a complex of events associated with it, the parousia is seen in the same way. It's not just a 24-hour day. It's a complex of events associated with the rapture and all the events with Christ's return. Now, proof of that is turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 17. Luke 17, 26. I'm going to just talk a little bit about this parousia. It says, Luke 17, 26, it says, Just as it happened in the days of Noah, so it will be also in the days of the Son of Man. Now, I'm going to unpack more of the significance of this passage later, but notice this phrase, the days of the Son of Man. Keep your finger right there. Don't lose that spot, but now turn back to Matthew 24, 37. Okay, keep that spot there, but turn to Matthew 24, 37, because I want to show you, this is something that Daryl Bach from Dallas Theological Seminary discovered. There's the identical construction in Greek between Matthew 24, 37 and Luke 17, 26, except one significant change. It's talking about the same identical thing, but in Matthew 24, 37, Matthew records this. He says, For as were the days of Noah, so will be the parousia of the Son of Man. So notice the parousia is synonymous with what is in Luke 17, 26, the days plural of the Son of Man. So that is an indication then that the parousia isn't just a one-day event, but it is a complex of events, beginning with the rapture and associated with all the events regarding the Lord's return. Okay, The Theological Dictionary of the New Testament, now this isn't some dispensational rag, this is the Theological Dictionary of the New Testament, says this about the term parousia. It says primitive Christianity, that would have been the first century Christians, right, during the uh, apostolic period, Primitive Christianity waits for the Jesus who has come already as the one who is still to come. Now listen to this. The hope of an imminent coming of the exalted Lord in messianic glory, however, is so much to the forefront in New Testament terms, or I'm sorry, in New Testament thought, that the terms are never used for the coming of Christ in the flesh. Does everybody follow that? In other words, the doctrine of imminence is so prevalent in New Testament theology that they didn't dare use the term parousia to refer to Christ's first coming because you would get the first and the second coming then confused. So when it refers to Jesus with his parousia, the term is exclusively used for his second coming. Why? Because it's so imminent. They didn't want the first and second advent to be goofed up, to have you confused. That's how imminent the idea of his parousia was. Okay, again, this is a theological dictionary of the Testament, not exactly a dispensational source by any means, okay? And why I, say, why I say dispensational, by the way, is those are typically those who are pre-trip, okay? All right, now, the other thing I want to point out here is, and we, this is the last thing I have to leave off here, but is this verb near. Now, the verb near, what's very interesting is it comes from angizo. Now, remember I was talking about the near earlier in Revelation 1-3? That's the adverb like the guy angus, okay? Well, this is a verb that's related to that, 
in gitzo. But here's the significant thing about the perfect tense. The perfect tense has to do with an event that was accomplished in the past, but because of the accomplished, it's perfect, it was complete in the past, there's a resulting effect to this day. Now, why in the world would James use a perfect tense verb? What action occurred in the past that would bring a lasting present-day result? Bob alluded to it earlier, the death, burial, resurrection, and the ascension of Christ, his first advent. And because that was completed by God, we're in the last days. And so the lasting result of that is that we're always having the parousia near. Remember the term kairos? The significant time, the appointed time, it is at hand. That's what's being taught over and over and over in the New Testament. So now I'm going to finish the rest of this slide next week, this presentation, but I'll add more to it. What I'm going to show you is the grand confusion occurs really in the Olivet Discourse because there seems to be signs and there seems to be imminence. And what we'll show you is that the signs are within the 70th week, but the question as to when that 70th week will break forth, no one knows. And that gives us imminence. We don't know when it's going to come. Okay? So that'll be for next time. Now let me just finish in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you so much for your word that you have given to us about the soon coming of your Son. And we ask, Lord, that because of his soon return, that we would live lives that are holy, we would live lives that are different than those in the world, and that we would never stop believing in your great promises, that we would love one another, and that we would continue to persevere into that day. And so I ask by your Spirit that you enable my brothers and sisters to remember these great promises, that any day he can break forth through the clouds and bring us to glory. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.